Hello everyone and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, a film and television podcast in which we talk about a theme which changes from episode to episode. My name is Erin Davis and joining me this week through the middle of satellite technology is Emily Benita. Hi Emily, how's it going? Oh, you know Ed, disappointed, confused, at some points really quite pleasantly surprised, but I don't know how else it was going to be, though we'll get into that in greater detail very shortly. How are you? Uh, Yeah, I'm good. Uh, I have been trying to do some Oscar catch-up this week and we'll be talking more about that in the the main body of the episode but uh, I also decided to go very much the opposite direction and watch Bloodsport the (laughs) star-making vehicle for Jean-Claude Van Damme from 1988 which does have a tenuous Oscar connection because a poster for the movie plays a pivotal role in the three-time Oscar-nominated documentary uh, *Flea*, which I also watched this week, and yeah, it was very weird because *Bloodsport* is one of those movies that I have heard people talk about for years and years and years, and it's it's very much because in the context of this was the movie that made John Claude Van Damme a star, and also it got a weird tangential importance to American politics a couple of years ago when it was included in an article about how Donald Trump really likes it Uh, and how he would watch it. He had a version of it where all of the non-fighting scenes had been cut out. (laughs) Uh, Which... Oh, God. uh, And as I was watching it, I was thinking, I hate to hand it to him, but that is the right way to watch this movie. (laughs) Um, Broken clock, etc, etc. But... Yeah, it's it. Uh, yeah, so it was weird watching it and thinking, you know, this is uh, kind of an important cultural touchstone, I guess, particularly in terms of the action movies of the eighties and nineties. And then I was watching it, and I'm watching it now from the context of being someone who, over the last couple of years, has watched a lot of action movies from Hong Kong in the eighties and nineties as a as an attempt to kind of broaden my general understanding of that genre because it's it's always been a bit of a blind spot for me and and so watching it now I I see that and while it is a lot of fun and it is a profoundly silly movie I couldn't help but think yeah this feels like a blurry copy of a lot of really good movies (laughs) Um, and every element of it you're thinking it's not as well shot as a lot of those movies from that era it's not as funny or as brutal as a lot of the movies from that era but because it's copying a lot of really good movies it still kind of has a residual level of quality that still makes it a pretty good time Mm. so that would say you know it's it's very much like you know in the early 90s if you're talking about like four from fifth tier Britpop bands like you know Shed 7 still all right to listen to Mm -hmm. yeah and Bloodsport, very much the Shed 7 of um, of action movies. Put that on the box. <laughs> so we'll go on to the news for this week. And obviously the big news is the Oscars and we'll be getting to those in a moment. But there are a few other stories that we want to talk about here. Uh, first of which, and something that I think you and I are both uh, probably too, too invested in, is the fact that Futurama is coming back. 
Futurama, of course, the show created by Matt Groening and David X. Cohen, uh, uh, aired on Fox in uh, from 1999 to 2003, and then was revived and aired on Comedy Central from, I want to say, like 2009 to 2013, something in that range. So it has uh, been away for a while. I thought I thought it ended fairly strongly both times, both, both finales felt sweet and conclusive but uh nothing can die in um <laughs> in the current culture so obviously that means that uh they have to bring it back and uh it's being revived by hulu who presumably have seen a lot of people watching the show uh, because it's currently based there and it they've been brought back for 20 new episodes it's gonna be at all of the or most of the original cast currently the only holdover and this is probably the thing reason why the return of Futurama got a lot of attention uh, certainly in the circles that I travel in online was that the current cast member who is not signed up for the revival is John DiMaggio who played the character of Bender um, he is currently in negotiations to return but apparently negotiations have stalled so there are various campaigns online to say you know people should boycott the new future armor if he can't be involved and so it feels a little bit like uh negotiating in public and trying to generate enough of a groundswell of public support to force uh hulu to meet whatever his demands are uh, and you know personally i hope that they do because um it would be hard to imagine someone else taking on that role you really need the the sheer exuberance that dimaggio brings to the role of bender yeah i mean futurama has one of the softest spots that's available in my heart and i have to tell you ed that's pretty damn soft (laughs) of all of the things to come back in our horrendous no intellectual property can die and zombifying of franchise i think futurama is actually in a place to incorporate that because Mm -hmm. it was always about the future isn't that great and we're still people yeah (laughs) and our friends Mm -hmm. may be aliens and robots but we are fundamentally flawed beings that are just trying to figure it out and i think it's spiritually the most connected to my life in hell matt groening's original cartoon uh with Mm, yeah anthropomorphic bunnies and it was about um, being a young guy in Los Angeles and relationships and sort of strange things before uh, he panicked in the, before he went into pitch to Fox. Um, and he was originally just going to do My Life in Hell as a series of cartoons, The Tracy Ullman Show. And then he panicked and quickly made up a bunch of characters, named them all after his family. And that was how The Simpsons was born. So I think that Futurama returns to kind of what he originally was about. And I think there's a refreshing millennialness to it because I think they're all very Gen X-y. Like mm. the, the kind of first series of Futurama is very much, you know, these are people in their mid-20s, early 30s by the turn of the millennium, you know? And... Yet, I think it's the only sort of property where millennials and Gen Z can get on board, even if they're not necessarily familiar with it before, because it's essentially about the gig economy before that really mm-hmm. kind of like took off. Um, get the Planet Express app now. 
but also it has such a soft spot in my heart because it was one of the first things that I bought on DVD and like mm. saved up all my pocket money and got my Futurama DVDs and they had gorgeous uh, DVD extras like the alien language kind of uh, Rosetta Stone style translations but fundamentally the Futurama DVD commentaries are what made me want to work in film and TV um, <clears throat> because they all sounded like they really got on <laughs> and had a great time and were just like regaling each other with how fun it was at the time and like so much extra stuff. It felt like a watching party with your friends. And the thing that struck me in the commentaries is how clear it is that the voice actors were very much that because now of course we have the kind of steer towards it's a celebrity it's it's an actor and that doesn't necessarily mean you are the best voice actor um <clears throat> and the the other the thing about having these voice actors is that they are so adept at voicing a range of different characters as well as their principal cast members and that's the thing about john dimaggio is like you know, I, th I can't remember the name of the episode and 12-year-old me is very angry with me about that right now. But there is an episode where Bender gets involved with the robot mafia. Mm -hmm. and yeah. John DiMaggio essentially spends that entire episode talking to himself. So it's mm -hmm. not yeah. simply, I cannot imagine anyone else to play Bender. It's like, who else are you going to get with the fucking range? And who knows what you're about? Um, so it seems like he's pulling a Lynch... Twin Peaks return, um, which I think is entirely within his right. And, you know, Futurama has always had a very dedicated cult sort of base. And I can't see them fucking around with trying to palm people off because I think it could be DOA if he's not involved. But you were saying, Ed, it's pretty much ready to go. As in when at the time that we're recording this, it's tomorrow. <laughs> Yeah, tomorrow the table reads are going to start up. So, and obviously, it'll whenever the episodes will air, it'll probably be next year or something once everything gets animated. But yeah, it certainly seems that in terms of the writing and the general idea for how they're going to bring the show back, like it definitely seems like they are very far along in the process. Which you know, fair play for, to them for keeping it quiet up until now. Yeah, that's really impressive. But at the same time, like. I mean, if I were an exec producer without one of the main characters, I'd be freaking out. And I think, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, they accept John DiMaggio's demands because it's, it's kind of close to time, isn't it? Um, mm. But I, I still... I'm I'm a very uh, shit Futurama fan in that I've only seen the very original series. I haven't watched the films and then the kind of last kind of uh, revival because I'm just scared about getting hurt again, Ed. But hearing you say, no, it's solid, I need to kind of buck up and, and get back on because, you know, Scruffy's going to die the way he lived. <laughs> Yeah, I, I would say the the revival series of the show are not they're not as good as the original, um, but also a lot of some of that is just nostalgia. And like you, I've I've seen those first four seasons so many times, and 
listened to the commentaries so many times that it's kind of hard to judge them fairly. Um, but there's definitely some really good stuff, and the the what ended up being their second finale, um, I think, is uh, up there with the best stuff from the original run of the show. So, yes, there's definitely it's definitely worth watching, but it's it's worth going in with maybe sort of tempered expectations. Noted. Um, but yeah, in terms of in terms of other revivals of beloved sitcoms of the early 2000s that aired on Fox and then were cancelled and then were brought back by a, st- a streaming service. <laughs> it's uh, one of the better case scenarios. And next story, uh, quite, quite a sad one, I think, for anyone who has wanted to write or talk or you know do any sort of cultural coverage is the news that Entertainment Weekly is ceasing its print run um, in uh, immediately, uh, along with a bunch of other magazines, all owned by a company called Dot Dash Meredith, which sounds like uh, someone who would have hacked the DNC, but um, <laughs> apparently no, it's a publisher. This is, on one level, it's not that surprising, because obviously there are very few big magazines that exist anymore, um, and so many publications have shifted to just being online anyway so it's not surprising that entertainment weekly as big and as important as it is would follow suit but it still feels uh, very sad for anyone who grew up particularly in the 90s when entertainment weekly really was the bible of pop culture and when this news was reported uh, pretty much every critic I follow was really genuinely devastated by this and they all had the same story which was that they religiously read Entertainment Weekly as a teen and absorbed it all and it gave them the some of the inspiration and the spark that they needed to think I could write about culture as a living and it just feels like one of those other kind of dominoes falling of the idea of culture fragmenting to such a state that that you cannot really have a central hub anymore that really brings everything together and can serve as you know in terms of what we talked about um a couple of weeks ago like there's that sense of curation and of there being a, an authority to say hey this is some stuff that you should pay attention to and that can have the sort of platform to really build up and bring in people to stuff that they otherwise might not find. Um, and and also, you know, there were so many stories about weird cover shoots that they had done uh, or weird interviews they did. Like, uh, oh, was it, there was someone saying that someone they got, like, uh, Whit Stillman to be interviewed by uh, someone whose name was basically just a spoonerism of it and things like that. Like, they had all of these weird silly ideas that they they did because um they had the freedom and the latitude and the desire to do something weird and interesting with pop culture reporting it is a wicked shame because as someone who has occasionally written uh articles it feels real when it's in print i don't know whether that is gonna change and whether there will be a thirst for younger journalists to see their work in print and hold it in their hands mm-hmm. but i i can't imagine not you know and yeah it's um like it's odd that 
you know, I remember kind of Entertainment Weekly covers. I think it was the Desperate Housewives one that was like pretty notorious, like a swimwear shoot. And I remember that kind of like the uh, them sort of quite boldly saying, you'll never guess what it took to get this photograph. And it was like, oh, this is just like, you know, that they're, they're really, uh, it's juicy and they are really biting into it. But the, the very notion of like cover, like issue covers is starting to fade because <clears throat> I mean, other than kind of your heavy fashion mags, which are of course three quarters adverts for like luxury brands and things, you know, that lack of a centralized artifact also means, you know, your front page actually becomes different. It's not like you have, you know, I, I think this, the loss of that art and the loss of that tradition, which is not entirely dissimilar to kind of opening sequences, I feel like that's starting to get shoved out more and more. So, yeah, I I do miss print editions and, and certainly as someone who is now no longer on social media and trying to find ways of staying informed in the world, but also not wanting to sort of create more physical, like physical objects that will then just become waste. Like to me, it seems very wasteful to have things that are only kind of relevant for a month at a time. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's it can be a nightmare to read things online looking at you the independent with ads like it's just absolutely unreadable so if any boffins can come and sort that out i'd be very grateful <laughs> and finally in our last piece of non-oscar news there was the news that there is going to be a blade runner tv series at amazon called blade runner 2099 ridley scott is going to produce and possibly direct it's obviously as the name suggests it's going to continue on from the world as created in Blade Runner and Blade Runner 2049. And yeah, I just find this to be a bit strange because Blade Runner 2049, not a particularly successful movie. Uh, I think it was very expensive and didn't gross a huge amount. So uh, seems like uh, a bit of a loss all round. But also it, it maybe speaks to the residual power that the phrase Blade Runner has in culture Mm -hmm. because it it really is one of those things where every so often people just really dust it off and think, okay, what else we can do with this? You know, obviously that was the original film and the director's cut in the nineties. There was the, uh, the PC game in the nineties as well. It was uh, very influential. Then obviously more recently, the 2049, Uh, it is, it is fascinating to see how many cracks at the bat people want to take on on Blade Runner despite the fact that I think it's really it's over three at this point in terms of actually being a sort of um wildly successful endeavor oh I mean I think I've made myself quite clear ad nauseam several people how deep my hatred for Blade Runner 2049 is and if it weren't for Roger Deakins and I could just look at the film <laughs> uh, instead of re-watch it so I'm just not enticed by this prospect at all but if it's a TV show and we could delve into the wider Blade Runner universe and 
with a, a sort of generations worth of a gap between t the TV and um, the sequel. I don't know. I I mean, like you say, Blade Runner has become such a go to in terms of pondering exactly what it's doing in that realm of sci-fi and I think it's only becoming more relevant so I just would love it to have just literally any women writing on it please <laughs> <laughs> and just not not some straight men because 2049 was just I I I can't understand why you think the ability to reproduce gives people freedom like when at a time when one of the first things that Trump did was an abortion ban like I just don't and sorry Ed I'm gonna stop there because I I won't be able to stop myself if I continue any further yeah it's it, it definitely feels like there's a lot of opportunity there I think the main thing I would want it to try and do is to really try and expand and go beyond the ideas of Blade Runner because it really didn't feel like 2049 did much of that nope. and it feel it, it it kind of has that thing and, and Tim Rogers talks about this in the cyberpunk um review that you and I both recommended for our best of the year for last year where he talks about the notion of cyberpunk and how in many ways that whole genre really hasn't progressed much past the 80s. Mm -hmm. uh, and the aesthetics of it have remained sort of really trapped in amber to an extent. And that, to me, would be the thing that would be enticing if the trailers for Blade Runner 2099 come out and the world that they give us a glimpse of is, is drastically different in some way from what's preceded. And it really felt like they were trying to rethink what is cyberpunk, what does this genre mean, then I'd be quite interested in it. But also at the same time, like the reason they want to make this is because they think there's an, a market in there for just slapping Blade Runner on something. So not sure how much of a real genuine desire there is for, for that. So we'll go on to our main topic for this week, which is um, the Oscars more broadly and the nominations that just came out this week. And then uh, at talk, towards the end, we're going to talk a little bit about our suggestions for how to make the Oscars better in one way or another. But we'll, we'll talk for the moment about the uh, nominations, the slate for this year. And I got to say, I think the general response online... I think this was my response as well, was, could have been worse. Yeah. Which sounds like damning with faint praise, but like the Oscars can be such a, I don't know, such a dispiriting end to a year in film that they, that, and yeah, you know, sometimes they'll just nominate the most boring things imaginable. There'll be nothing there that's got real much of an edge to it. Though It'll all be very toothless. But I don't know, this slate seems that there's obviously the mix of some things in there that are just kind of like toothless. But the fact that, uh, you know, like um, Licorice Pizza has done pretty well. The Power of the Dog is the, uh, I think, the most nominated movie. I think it's got like 12 Oscar nominations, which is, is wild to think of for a, a Jane Campion movie, considering that she hasn't really had that sort of pull at the Oscars since 
since the piano. So, you know, we're going on for nearly 30 years at this point. Um, but uh, something like uh, Nightmare Alley, which got a bit of a, a, a mixed response when it came out, uh, but I watched and thought was a, a real distinctive and exciting and gothic vision and something that genuinely felt quite seedy in a way that you wouldn't expect to get rewarded by the Oscars. Yeah, to, to me, it just seems like there's a, there's a lot of good stuff mixed in there amongst the usual kind of milk toast Oscar nonsense. Yeah, I agree with you. I'm still not happy, but, <laughs> but there has been improvement. And also, like, slap wrist for me, my Oscar catch-up is woefully... <laughs> it's woefully behind so behind in fact i've still not watched nomadland and it's just sitting there festering on my disney plus watch list and i don't know why i can't bring myself to watch it as much as i feel like i do want to Ugh. well now's the right time because the discourse around it has completely died away and everyone's <laughs> forgotten it ever happened so. and i'm free so of course you know good luck to everyone this year I'll be staring at whatever wins, going, uh. So, you know, that's the true prize. I think we're still in such an odd time of transition where, like, some progress has been made, but it feels like a real patchwork to me, which I don't think is bad, but I don't think it's the true sort of diversity and inclusion um, that it's sort of making out that it is um and i still haven't seen the power of the dog um coda quite a few and and licorice pizza which i'm desperate to watch and i mean the fundamental thing i think with the academy is that they really don't award based on films it's always been in their history it's been about reputation it's been about a gr like cumulative fondness which is why when big breakthroughs happen it's actually very rarely like the oscars is not the front line the oscars catches up right the oscars mm -hmm. is always catching up and i think because of the outward liberal reputation hollywood likes to give itself across the world it's always shocked when there's a backlash because particularly in the past five years the rest of the world has gone more radical in the mainstream in however many different directions and green book isn't going to cut it anymore <laughs> so i think it's indicative of going in a direction, twirling, twirling through <laughs> to men, but not necessarily... How do I put this? I think it's more like thinking about... I need to sort of comment more on what's happened just now before I move into kind of what our suggestions are for making it better. But I think the Oscars doesn't know what it's for anymore. Um, mm -hmm. I think best picture is like it, it feels like all of the balls have been released in a lottery announcement 
and they're all just jangling around there and it's like okay well here's a big bunch and I think it's confusing variety for diversity and inclusion I know that West Side Story has got a couple of noms which you're particularly um, happy about and see very well deserved Mm. again still haven't watched it naughty me but correct me if I'm wrong but is there any sort of Spanish spoken in it? Uh, Yes Great, because it's really finally, fucking finally, America might be accepting that American film, you know, the language that is mainly spoken in the United States might finally get a look in as an American film and not a foreign language film. Because I hate to say Mm. it to you, America, but English is not your, (laughs) it's not your first language. Also, it's uh, unsubtitled Spanish as well. Oh. (laughs) Yeah, so there's, there's lots of sections in West Side Story where characters will just speak in Spanish and they kind of from context it's pretty easy to tell what they're talking about. Fucking bueno. This what's this like someone's been watching Dora the Explorer and thought we can we can bring this to the adult masses. This is good. I love a bit of learning by context. I'm absolutely overjoyed that uh Quest loves Summer of Soul or the revolution will not be televised is in the front runner for best documentary. And I would love so much for it to win because I watched it recently. And I think it is possibly the best concert film ever made because it manages to weave together concert and context so beautifully. Like the footage is is of such a stunning quality, but it's seamlessly interwoven with, retrospectives and archive and analysis and at no point does the tone feel strange or um dashed apart and like tonal shifts it it focuses completely on the resistance side of the liberation so instead of kind of oh look at all of this like joyous vibrant performance and then like hard gear slam into and things were very bad it's actually like no this is all a continuation of the same thing it's it's about collective action and that can include joy and joy has a fundamental part in that so I was just completely blown away by it and it's lovely to see Coda get a look in as well even though it's like still bizarre that Marley Matlin is the only actor um deaf actor to have won (laughs) like anything that was a what like speaking of like oh Jane hello Marley hello what year <laughs> is this not to say that like I'm not delighted that longer standing careers can now happen for women in Hollywood but uh yeah I still feel like you know it's it's such a mixed bag and I don't think I think the Oscars is uh having a bit of an identity crisis and it is forcing us to ref, like to think about what it was, think about what it will be. And I think we're just in smack bang in the middle of a greater transitionary period that started happening around 2014 and through things like Oscars So White and, you know, making the Oscars wake up to the fact that it is the biggest awards ceremony in the world and the responsibility that comes with that. Mm. So yeah, I'm, uh, but okay. I'm just sore about house of Gucci. How many, sorry to get John Oliver about this, but how many fucking films does Adam driver have to be in (laughs) for him to get a nomination around here? 
Like nothing for House of Gucci. Cruella got a fucking nomination, Ed. So yeah, I uh, where I want my camp treats. It's just, you know, if I wanted House of Gucci to sweep the board and you know what? I haven't even seen it and I don't care that it's, <laughs> I don't care that it's a camp trash fire. That's the only thing I think is worth an Oscar these days. <laughs> yeah, I think that there should be a an option to retroactively give someone an Oscar. If they've already won an Oscar and you don't feel like they deserve it retroactively, you should be saying, actually, they should. They won for this. And I think that should have been the case for Jared Leto. Oh, Let's God, yes. <laughs> take it away from Dallas Buyers Club and all of its problematic elements of him playing a trans character. Let's give it to him and his far more socially acceptable appropriation of Italian culture. <laughs> Um, for his performance yeah, in House of Gucci, you can just, which you can just etch the the film's name like the same statuette. Yeah, just like show up to the engraver after the ceremony and just be like, "Hey, man, could you uh, could you change?" I assume he still talks in the Italian accent. Oh, of course, um, right. method to the call cool, that one. <laughs> yeah, that's what that's what he should he should do is for the entirety of the award season he should have gone round in all of his makeup and doing the accents and things like that i think it would have been he would have won some hearts i think pig hearts um but yeah i I think you're right about the notion of it being a a transitional era um there was a piece by sam adams in slate called the oscars aren't going back which i read um in the week which i thought was really interesting in that respect where he was talking about how since 2012 i think which was when there was that report published about the membership of the academy where they said it was like 94 percent white and 70 percent male or something like that some crazy crazy lack of diversity in the, the most extreme way the membership of the academy has doubled it used to be about five thousand members and now it's about ten thousand. and the new members have overwhelmingly been uh, women they have overwhelmingly been people of color they have been uh people uh, international uh, members of the international filmmaking community so people who are not involved in hollywood and in some cases may have no interest in being ho- in hollywood um then oh, and also they are in the other branches beside the actors who tended to be one of the more the biggest and more dominant factions within the uh, the academy itself and in the piece, Sam Adams talks about how you really see that in the fact that in the last couple of years we have seen multiple films that would usually be consigned to the international film category, as it is now known, uh, breaking out into other categories, the, the big ones, of course, uh, in recent years being Parasite, which obviously did hugely well uh, a couple of years ago, Roma, which, you know, you could point to and say, obviously, Alfonso Cuarón's established, so that was a little bit of a exclamation mark. But then this year, you have Drive My Car, which is one of the most acclaimed films of the year, three-hour-long Japanese movie based on a Haruki Murakami novel uh, directed by Rusuke Hamaguchi, who is loved in um, cinephile circles, but is not, but not even, but doesn't even have the sort of clout that a Bong Joon-ho has you know because like Bong Joon-ho someone who was who had made a bunch of movies that had been critically beloved and also had had some degree of popular permutation in the west I would say whereas Hamaguchi's films have not achieved that despite the fact that he is 
I'd say like wildly acclaimed and has directed like three or four movies that are often talked about as being amongst the best movies of the last decade. And it really feels like the way in which that film has broken out feels like a validation of the approach that they have taken where a movie is there pretty much just on the merits. It's not got there because Rusuke Hamaguchi is some sort of Hollywood player who everyone you know has this residual affection for. He is a, a brilliant artist who has made a film that a lot of people really, really connected to. In fact, he made two films uh, this year, the other being Wheel of... Um, uh, what's it called? Wheel of, Wheel of Fantasy and Fortune, I think, is his other like big movie that came out this year, but which didn't find the same sort of traction in um, in the award season. And it really does feel like that. In those instances, you can really see the impact of a more global appreciation of film being represented in the Oscars. You also see it in situations like Howell. Pawlowski, uh, I've definitely got that name wrong, <laughs> uh, for getting a, a Best Director nomination for Cold War a couple of years ago, which was not a movie that had much traction in other categories, but people saw it and thought, yeah, that movie is stunningly directed and it needs rec- a recognition. And then this year, Worst Person in the World has been nominated for Screenplay, uh, which I think speaks to the growth of... Again, those other those other guilds within the academy writing in that instance, where people are coming in and having a different perspective on what film should be, and looking at this and thinking, and looking at something like worst person in the world, and thinking, you know, obviously it's in a language that many of us don't speak, but the script is still clearly fantastic, and recognizing that and rewarding it as such. For me, I think, and if you look in the documentary categories, you have something like, obviously, Summer of Soul is up there, and that's wonderful. You also have uh, Ascension, which is a, a fairly abstract documentary about the the climbing the social ladder in China, which is the sort of thing that I think would not have been nominated sort of 10 years ago in that category. I think the influx of younger, more idiosyncratic and dynamic people into the documentary guild has allowed for more experimental documentaries to be recommended uh, ditto um, flea which is an animated documentary from denmark which is nominated in both documentary animation actually in three it's in animation documentary and international feature which uh, is is fantastic to see and really does feel like these expanded viewpoints and perspectives being represented and taking putting their stamp on the nominations you know i think the only area where you look at it and you think the oscars are still too conservative on a lot of their choices is in the acting categories because i think the acting category the acting guilds um are the ones that have been changed at the least by the influx um obviously you know people have aged out or, or passed away. So like those older members of, are being removed, but there is still, I think, a bias there towards white performers and also performers who are performing in the English language. Like this year, Penelope Cruz, I think is the only, I, I guess Ariana DeBose does have some, as we were talking about, you know, some of her performances in Spanish, but it's still mostly English. Yeah, like Penelope Cruz is the only person nominated for... Uh, 
a performance not in the English language. So that to me, and obviously the real downside there is they're the two, they're the most obviously public facing categories because uh, people know what actors look like because they're in the films. <laughs> and so that's where um, a lack of diversity is most readily apparent versus a lot of the other categories. Completely agree, Ed. And I think that's exactly it, that there's not enough of that fresh intake across all of the guilds, which is why we've got this weird kind of swirl going on. And it's lovely that there has been kind of heed from Bong Joon-ho talking about like, as soon as you get over this like inch of subtitles, this wall you have a whole world waiting for you but that hasn't kind of proliferated through and I don't think it's going to be something again that really comes through for like another couple of years um maybe even five to ten years precisely because of that kind of makeup of the academy and I would say that would probably be like my number one thing to change and to keep changing is you know why do people get lifetime membership to the academy? I don't understand. <laughs> mm. um, because I almost like if you've if you've won, fair enough. Because you've kind of been, you know, you've almost been voted in. But for other people, oh, I don't know. I think they did. That was one of their big changes a few years ago. Was that they did make it so that you have to have been active to, in the industry within a certain window of time to still be a voting member. Like, yeah. I can't remember exactly what it was. I I want to say it was like, you know, sort of within the past 10 or 15 years or something like that. So you didn't have, you know, someone who retired in 1995 still getting to vote on what the best movie in 20, uh, you know, 2022 is. Mm. Because it is, I think that's the fundamental thing of like who is working in the academy um, and again, how many of these Academy members are above the line? You know, mm -hmm. I don't think there yeah. are many below the line members. And if you wanted to um, see real change, I think that's something that would have to happen because this is still, as far as I'm aware, heads of department, it's all above the line. It's all people who are used to having power. And I don't, mm -hmm. and I think kind of to bring, to, sort of understand the academy side of the academy more to go like really down to the nitty-gritty of the etymology and it be like well this is a this is a wide school <laughs> um because if we're talking about who's the most active <laughs> who's the most underpaid Ayatsi can tell you exactly who <laughs> that is like just get Ayatsi involved um and I also think the kind of the way, I mean, I mentioned this a while ago in terms of like ambient thoughts as I was like in the run up to award season, just taking me by complete surprise, is again, as you mentioned, acting categories, which is to abolish gender, just overall, but, but like get rid of gendered categories and have best original performance and best adapted performance, which is a nice way of saying impression. But also maybe, I think, adding in, like, best breakthrough. I mean, not to sound too MTV, but I think 
there's something quite exciting. And I think what the BAFTAs does very well is have that audience voted element. So, mm. so it feels very much that the audience has a part, a part in it and a vested interest in it because the Oscars also, the viewing ratings are going down and down year upon year. So, you know, if you can get the audience invested in it and there is genuinely no sense of who's going to win, because I'm not excited anymore. You know, I don't, I don't get this sense of like real tension of like, here are the front runners and this is why it's just kind of like, oh, well, this biopic will. And so to actually kind of peel apart Oscar bait, because I was really excited to see Olivia Coleman nominated for The Lost Daughter and having finally caught up with The Lost Daughter, it is definitely a phenomenal performance in a film that is essentially a vehicle for that performance. <laughs> and it's lovely to see an original character because mm. that, that is so rare. And someone who, of course, is not actually, who doesn't have a chronic illness, nothing against Anthony Hopkins, again, for the father with Olivia Coleman, and, you know, not to do down his performance, but to have an original character who is doing something different within the realm of Oscar-worthy performances is really refreshing. So I'd love to do something like that. And then, you know, in, in a line, I sort of originally spoke about it being kind of in alignment with screenplay, best adapted, and best original. I think in terms of mentioning the Oscars as a ceremony and as a um, vehicle for ad revenue and sponsors and all of this. I think it's getting harder to justify because I, I genuinely think a large percentage of people, their stomachs are just turned by this kind of show now. And by that, mm. I mean like this show of wealth and, we see this with the Met Gala and if like Met Gala people are only watching it and being like tearing it to shreds, like I think that's the way that the Oscars is going as well. It's like, we know the rich have these fancy parties, but we're really, we can't, it's not as fun anymore mm -hmm. for us to just kind of witness. It actually feels complicit um, and somehow encouraging. So I think the Oscars either needs to kind of go down the Emmys route because the Emmys was actually quite strange when it was all like at home and, you know, people in like nylon sort of diving slash hazmat suits were bringing round awards <laughs> to people's houses and then being like, no, you don't get this. Bye bye. And then walk away. People actually found that quite endearing because at least it's just a bunch of people at home. Yes. In beautiful multimillion dollar homes, like whether they get an award or not, but you know, there was a sense of uh, communality, which I think is just, which was an illusion, of course, but a fun one while it lasted. So I think the Oscars either needs to figure the fuck out how it's going to be a valuable thing to watch or just cut that off completely. Because really, I think the fashion is still, um, you know, because we don't, we don't see what happens inside the Met Gala. Only People only care about the arrival and the red carpet. That's the stuff that's public. And the Oscars mm. can well go that way as well and it seems like if you you know they can't get a decent host to save their lives because again they don't it, it's really fucking difficult to be essentially the mockingjay of 
a really troubled institution and you can't kind of do a BAFTA and like lean on someone sort of a national treasure because if you try and name that like I mean honestly if it's Tom Hanks then maybe but so that's a kind of so right what what are my action points for the Oscars just now sort out your categories figure out whether you're actually going to be a decent watch or not and you know pander to viewing figures this way or that and then I'd also say like so fresh intake across all of the guilds but also I think the fact that the voting systems for different character uh, categories is uneven is also part of it because I think the lack of tension and excitement and investment for me to really be involved in Oscar season is there are so many fucking films in the best picture category and it's like well I guess any of them because I remember when it used to be like five or six and there was a real kind of like oh yeah like there's one I really want to win there are a couple I have no idea why they're there there's one that will be like you know the crowd favorite and by crowd I mean the academy crowd um so I also think just because I'm feeling in a big abolishy mood Ed I'd abolish best picture as well oh interesting I don't see what the point of it is now. Like, I can understand the kind of aggregate of, um, oh, you know, this is the picture that won the most awards. Because often, you know, it's... Uh, sorry, my, my cat also has thoughts, SRS mm-hmm. audience. This is this is Malcolm, and, and he has a lot to say about the Oscars as well. Because I don't... that It's so out of sync now, where a film can get best picture, but another film can, like, sweep the board in other ways. And I almost feel like best picture is more valuable as being like, you know, it, it was it like Moonlight was so historic, not just because of the of the kerfuffle. <laughs> mm. Like that was beautiful because genuinely no one saw it coming. And there was something really beautiful about the Academy going for the better film, not the film that was like the circle jerk. Because whether you like La La Land or not, the fact that it, you know, sort of went in for as many Oscars as it did was essentially Hollywood going, oh, aren't we just magical? But I don't really see the point in Best Picture anymore. Because unless you are using that as an opportunity to award something that you want to get a look in, I find that a little bit, maybe a little bit pitying. And I don't know, I think maybe just I don't get what it means anymore and I also think this is actually the case looking throughout Oscar history is that you know the number of times where (laughs) best film has gone to something where everyone's like oh that was one that year you know so I think it's a dubious honor that tarnishes quickly best picture and I think we'd be all better off without it I will offer a slight defence of Best Picture. Please do. My main defence, and it's up to the moment because this is based primarily on the box office receipts for this past weekend, the weekend after the nominations were announced. Um, Drive My Car, which is, you know, a fairly... Prior to this was a movie that only cinephiles were really excited about um, and has had a very slow rollout around the country, much to my frustration, (laughs) because... I I would really like to I would like to see it, and so far it's not played within like a two hour drive of me. That saw an increase of about a hundred percent in its box office totals directly as a result of 
it getting a Best Picture nomination. And so I think what's nice about the Best Picture nomination, and particularly about the extended slate, is that it does provide a good list for the people who don't go and watch a lot of movies or aren't as keyed into, you know, what the cultural conversation is around movies to say, okay, what are these movies? Oh, I've not heard of this one. I should check it out. And then that can be measured at least, you know, when movies are playing in theaters and report box office and are not just streaming. Um, that can man- manifest in a real powerful sense of more people checking out a movie that they otherwise might not have seen. And I think that as just a general sort of barge pole or whatever, as a general sort of um, point where you can just say, okay, like this is a movie that people should care about and at least check out. I think it, it's an unalloyed good in that respect. And I think that's one of the nice things as well about the fact that they do do 10, up to 10 nominations is that, you know, you may get five that in there in previous years would not have had a chance, but I think it does have a real powerful impact on those movies and the careers of the people who made those movies. If they appear in that slate, you know, they will have a something that they can point to if they want to get their next movie um, financed or if they want to go in for a job, they can say, hey, I directed a movie or I acted in a movie that was nominated for Best Picture. So I think there are tangible and intangible benefits to best picture as a category um and that that i think i think that's the main reason i think of why um we should keep it i do think it's the one that you can point to for the average film goer as like you know you know this is the list of the 10 movies that you should watch Mm, true i think it's it's really hard to argue against that and all I'll say is just like it it works for things like such as drive my car parasite it's lovely to be able to kind of bring that word of mouthness of <clears throat> oh yeah this is good because basically the industry approves and the industry says yes even if i didn't make this this is the cutting edge of filmmaking. But then it also happens to things like Green Book. And I'm like, oh. So I do think it's patchy. But you're right, like, the Oscars themselves, as in the ceremony, doesn't doesn't matter, really. It's, <clears throat> it's a fantastic effort in publicity. Yeah, yeah. And also, like, on the back end of all of this stuff, you know, the Oscars fund all this stuff that the Academy do in terms of film preservation and things like that. So, like, there's lots of good stuff that the Academy do separate from the Oscars, that the Oscars is kind of the um, the operation that funds it all. So, like, on, on so yeah, that, that side of it, I can't help but um, want the Oscars to succeed just because it's nice that there's an organisation there that has a high profile and a decent amount of money to ensure that the history of cinema is preserved in some respect either through you know actually minting prints or or through the um academy museum that i think just opened within the last couple of years but which i don't think uh (laughs) many people will have had the chance to go visit for understandable reasons of course Um, i wonder then if um you know something that the academy can do is to up its year-round presence probably through this museum for the wider audience because 
there is the AFI, but I'm not sure how kind of interconnected they are because obviously with the BFI in the UK, which yes, surprise, surprise, who does Emily not have beef with? But fundamentally, that archive project and identifying a national film culture and preserving things for the benefit of citizens, I of course get behind. So I think for the Oscars to have a, a louder presence throughout the year takes the pressure off the awards. Mm. <laughs> and that might be the best thing for it. Mm, yeah. Uh, so I'll, I'll quickly run through some of my suggestions um, for what I think could fix the Oscars. The first one feels like a gimme. It's the thing everyone says, but there should be a category for best stunts. Yes. We were talking earlier about you know how I think that the current categories they tend to be uh, towards they they tend to be tilted towards uh, people who are above the line and who are front facing and generally isn't necessarily as as representative of the below the line workers uh, that exist in Hollywood and I think that having a stunt category really does correct that to an extent because stunt performers are so vital so much of the way in which films get made i also think you know a lot of the conversation about the oscars and you know should they nominate the new spider-man movie because it was the biggest hit of the year and it saved movie theaters or whatever all that sort of stuff um i find all of that a little bit kind of like silly it's not that the oscars isn't there to um reward things for being popular but if you wanted to get people interested and to if you wanted to have a category that really did cater to those kind of big budget movies, then you on the one hand you have like the effects and the sound editing and things like that, which tend to be dominated by those kind of movies. But I think stunts is something where they could really shine and also where the average film um viewer will be able to have a concrete understanding of what the category is. Because yeah. No offence to the intelligence of the average uh, film viewer, but like every year people were asked the question, what's the difference between like sound mixing and sound editing? Why are there two Oscars for this? Um, and there is a difference and it's very, you know, com- it's, it's a kind of very nuanced. But like, I think if you just said to someone, oh, there's an Oscar for best stunts, everyone would understand that. And I think everyone could get on board with a category that pitted like the, you know, a, a Marvel movie against like a John Wick movie or something. And... I think in terms of like the ceremony itself, you could have video packages where you have um, scenes from the movies, but then like a quick shot of the behind the scenes stuff of how the stuff was happening. And everyone loves that shit. Beautiful. Everyone loves behind the scenes stuff of how crazy stunts happen. Oh. Yeah. I, I think it's just such a, it's such an, an easy layup that the Academy have been missing for decades that they really should do. They should be a best stunt category. Next up, I have, this is purely in terms of ceremony, they should have Lifetime lifetime Achievement Award given out in the ceremony again. Um, I think it's a real disservice to the people who receive it that no one sees them receive it unless they kind of look out for the videos online. Um, and also, I think it's a way, when you announce it, like obviously depending on who receives it, but I think there is something to be said for bringing in people who are fans of a certain person getting to see them receive an Oscar. The example I think of is like Jackie Chan was given a Lifetime Achievement Award um, a few years ago and that wasn't in the ceremony. I think they maybe showed a clip or something. 
But I was just thinking how cool it would have been if he could have received it as part of the main ceremony and how many people from across all these different generations who have grown up watching Jackie Chan movies would have tuned in to see that. Oh, like, yeah. It feels like such an easy way to appeal to people across a broad spectrum. And, you know, obviously to kind of get in the older uh, viewers as well. If you're talking about um, stars of the, you know, particularly now, the sort of people who you'd expect to get a Lifetime Achievement Oscar would be people who were big in like the 70s and 80s. And, you know, you could really draw some of those people in to watch the ceremony. In terms of uh, categories as well, I think one of the silliest rules that the academy have is uh, for best international feature which is that each country can only submit one film yeah. for nomination i'm fine with it being that only one film from each country can be nominated because i think it again it, it adds a certain degree of fairness to it but i and also it would just be crazy if you just had every film every country submit every film they had produced and expect the academy to filter them all out um but i think that they should at least be a they should be allowed to at least submit like three per country just so that you don't give preferential treatment to like, you know, like, because like the movies that tend to get nominated a lot of the time from international feature, they tend to be like the drabbest, blandest versions from that country. Like it'll be some period drama from France or whatever. And it really feels like even if those are the movies that end up being nominated against, again, it would be nice if the Academy had to pick between, like, for France in particular, like, some Tony period drama, a Danny Boone movie, and Titane. Yeah. <laughs> totally, because a country is not just one film. Yeah. Um, so that I think that should be at least to kind of add a bit more variety and uh, uh, you know every once in a while you would end up with a truly wild movie being nominated for best international feature and I think that'd be nice Uh, and then my final one and this is probably the most complicated um, I think that if you win an Oscar you should not be eligible for nomination for five years I love that my thinking on this is partly because Oscars have their favourites mm-hmm and what you often see is like Jeff Bridges wins for Crazy Heart the next year he's nominated for True Grit. Now, I actually like his performance in True Grit a lot more than his performance in Crazy Heart, but I can't help but think like he already won. Let someone else have that slot. Let someone else be nominated for Best Actor that year. And on one that so I just on one level I think it just makes it a little easier for new people to get nominated and for different performances to get nominated. But I also look at it at the other end because I think if you say to someone, hey, you won an Oscar, you don't have to win, worry about trying to win an Oscar for another five years, then that person will probably make more interesting choices in their career. <laughs> like they won't get railroaded into doing, doing stuff that just is aimed at Oscars because they are now someone who's been nominated for and won an Oscar. I think it could have these ripple effects where you know actors will take on smaller roles or whatever to kind of go and do something or you know they'll just do big paycheck roles for like five years and earn a bunch of money which is also fine for them like fair play they they learned it and they can cash in but i really feel like there is something so boring about when you're watching 
the Oscars and the same names crop up year after year. It's like the fucking Reading Festival. Like <laughs> we've all seen the Food Fighters enough times. Let's have someone else headline. Uh, but uh, yeah, so like I think for me that would be the most fundamental uh, change to the way the Oscars work. And uh, I don't know how long uh, that would be allowed to happen and how mad everyone would get if it was ever implemented. But I, I think it could genuinely be interesting in shaking up how the ceremonies uh, take shape every few years. I love that, Ed. Hard cosign. Ignore every other suggestion I just made. That's the one I want <laughs> to push through. So we'll end this episode as we end all our episodes of Shot Vers Shot Recommends, which we talk about a piece of culture that we've enjoyed and we think you, the listeners, will enjoy as well. Emily, what have you got to recommend for the listeners this week? Everyone loves a bit of Kath Lebon, right? I certainly do. And I'm absolutely loving her new album, Pompeii, which is a mix of her kind of lush, ethereal vocals and some kind of synthy magic can't really put it another way like there's sort of a an 80s strand running through it but at the same time it sounds incredibly fresh and new and kind of um the the picture of the cover art is her as I think a kind of nun but with like neon streaks so it's got this kind of uh contemporary black narcissus edge to it and I just love it and it's so nice to have an album right out of the gate early on in the year you know um because it's nice to kind of you know have a soundtrack (laughs) now I'm starting to go outside again (laughs) and it is all about me and I am the main character but yeah can't recommend uh Pompeii by Kate LeBond enough Cool. Uh, I will recommend a video game that I've been playing uh, recently, which I've been enjoying quite a bit, called Nobody Saves the World, which is a action role-playing game, uh, kind of in a Zelda, like old Zelda style of going through various dungeons and fighting monsters. But the twist on it is that um, you play as a character called Nobody, who is described uh, as a a, a bold amnesiac, a bold amnesiac baby who just kind of like wakes up, has no idea who he is and just wanders around the world. And as you go along, you get the ability to take on different forms. So it'll be things like being able to transform into a rat and run around and bite people and poison them to transform into a, a ranger who fires arrows or a knight that, you know, kind of has a sword and all this sort of stuff. And it's very fun just to play on a um, mechanics level because, you know, it's it's got this really um, fun system for mixing and matching all the different abilities of all the different characters so you can you know make it so that all of your attacks poison people if you're the knight who isn't usually poisoning things but also it has a really funny sense of humor about it all for example there's a bit where you get the ability to turn into a horse and if you go to one area there's a bunch of horses rolling uh, running around and if you want to if you walk up to one of them and talk to it the dialogue just goes now this is a horse. And then it's kind of like you fall in love with the horse and uh, one of the achievements is uh, fall in unbridled love. <laughs> Which is a fantastic fun. And it just kind of has this real kind of like goofy, silly sense of humour. You're wandering around this fantasy world, which also has, you know, there's one bit which is very clearly a parody of the Fallout games where someone makes jokes about 
how everyone sells stuff using bottle caps and uh, how the rest of the world is stupid for having a fiat currency and things like that. Uh, and yeah, it's just a really delightful, silly game that's also just like so much fun to it makes the the stuff that usually i find really off-putting in rpgs like you know grinding really fun because it will do things like you know give you very specific challenges based on all the different abilities to carry out and yeah i've just been having a really really great time wandering around fighting things and seeing all the goofy stuff that they've got going on so that is nobody saves the world which is uh, available on xbox game pass so if you have that you can play it for free um and also i think it's on a bunch of other consoles if you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast then please subscribe to us on itunes stitcher player fans spotify all the usual places raters reviewers and recommend us to your friends it's the best way to help us grow our audience you can also find us on facebook and twitter where we are at srs underscore podcast back next time with something entirely different but until then it's goodbye from me and it's goodbye from me